Conversations with Future Generation, exploring the worlds of investing, philanthropy, mental health, and supporting children and youth at risk with people who are making the world a better place. There are many people like that in Australia. They're incredibly generous people. I aspire to try and change things for the better and inspire others to do the same. Only concern yourself with investments of absolutely high quality. Hosted by Louise Walsh, the CEO of Impact Investment Companies, Future Generation Australia and Future Generation Global. This is Conversations with Future Generation. Hi, I'm Louise Walsh and joining us today is Ross Greenwood. Ross is Sky News' business editor and the anchor of Weekend Business and was one of the earliest directors of WAM Capital, a listed investment company managed by Future Generation Pro Bono Fund Manager, Wilson Asset Management. So it's fabulous to have a guest here that's got a link um, with Future Generation and Wilson Asset Management. Ross's career in the media industry spans print, television and radio, which has allowed him to travel around the world, including to London, where he was editor-in-chief and co-creator of the British weekly magazine Shares. His decision to take a gap year in 2020 after enjoying a 40-year-long career has led to the launch of his podcast series, The Money Minutes. Welcome, Ross, to this podcast. Oh, Louise, great to be with you. We'll get stuck into it. So, look, the the icebreaker question to get us rolling is, how much personal investing do you do these days? I think everybody is, in their own way, a a personal investor. It doesn't matter whether it's through your superannuation, whether it's through houses you might acquire, uh, whether it's through businesses you might invest in. So, from that point of view, uh, yes, I am certainly a fairly active private investor. Um, I always have had to be pretty careful about the stocks that I would own uh, because you'd never want to have any allegation that you're trying to promote stocks or trying to pump stocks through the media because that clearly is a significant conflict of interest. Uh, And so as a result, you've either got to be very upfront in what you own or or you've got to be very careful in what you own. And I think that's it. Uh, It would be reasonable to say that you are probably, even in your reporting, not going to uh, sort of be able to move big shares, top 20 shares, for example, might be reasonable. And and it would be reasonable to expect in self-managed super funds or whatever that you might have some of those shares. But the reality is you've got to treat your own private investments a little like you might treat advertisers in the media. And, and that is, though they might be commercial partners of yours and, you know, very much, um, you know, welcome to be putting their money behind you, if something goes wrong with that organisation, you've got to be as hard and as sharp on them as you would any other organisation. And I think even if you go back through the Bank Royal Commission, you can see that the media has had to play that role, notwithstanding the banks historically have been some of the biggest advertisers in media. The media has had to do its job, notwithstanding those commercial interests. And I think exactly the same thing comes through with your own private investments and private interests, that you have got to recognise that there is actually a, a a barrier between what you do professionally and indeed your own personal interests. So I think that's absolutely key. But I've got to say, what it does lead to, in my own sense, is more private investments, in other words, non-listed investments, which of course entails more risk. But to be honest, also from my point of view, entails a bit more fun because you might be helping to build businesses, which in the future might just have a, a little bit more get up and go. What do you look for when you invest yourself? Uh, look, I think I, I look for, and because many of these private investments are trying to create businesses, you're trying to look for a future. 
Now, the problem for most private investors is, and particularly the dreamers, the, the inventors, um, you know, entrepreneurs, they might have the best idea in the world, but it's always about timing. The very best that create private wealth generally get the timing and the idea right. Many people get the idea right, but just simply don't get the timing. And so I guess what you're trying to do is get some coincidence of both of those ideas. The second part about it is that I think you've got to be able to have investments in things that you genuinely like. I I think it's really important that you have some affinity with what you invest in. And it doesn't matter whether it's like in my case, some uh, video production and, you know, sort of technology, a combination of that, which is kind of an interesting thing, or whether it's changes in legislation that allow disruption in certain industries. Again, something that I'm sort of fascinated by. And these things often turn out to be, well, relative punts, I guess. And so you've got to imagine that you've also got the pockets deep enough that can actually withstand if these things don't work. And in fact, that you simply got the idea right, but the timing wrong, or maybe the idea was wrong and the timing was absolutely perfect. You just don't know. So I think, you know, this is about being, again, risk averse, as well as trying to make certain that you've got some little eye on the stability that you've got financially. Uh, And I think this really is a bit of a lesson for every person. Um, One of the great things in life is to be able to get to a point where you can actually say, as I did in the past 12 months, look, I'm actually okay. I'm working because I, I want to work. I'm working because I enjoy work. I'm actually not working because I have to work. And I think if a person can get to that point, and many people don't during their lives, I recognize, but if you can get to that point during your life, I would say it's a very liberating feeling. Yeah, well done. Obviously, you worked incredibly hard, and we'll talk about that a little bit later on. But can you share with me a favorite stock management team? I mean, obviously, you've seen thousands and thousands, and and with your sort of roles, you've been privy to all sorts of ideas over the years. Has there been a an absolute favourite over the years? I know there's probably more than one, but can you single out one? Uh, yeah, look, I'll tell you what I, I... See, remember here, I'm not looking at it as an investment manager mind, right? I'm looking at it as a journalist does. And so the people that I like and the people that I'm attracted to are generally those that will give me the best stories or will give me the best interviews. So in other words, they're charismatic, they're upbeat, they've got a vision of the future. So, you know, some examples of that would be Jack Cowan, right? Hungry Jack's the, the, one of the great entrepreneurs of Australia's food industry. He's one of the great interviewers. Now, not listed, uh, but the reason why he's such a great interview is because he is thoroughly independent, because he's thoroughly self-made, and because he is utterly not frightened to say what he thinks. Now, the problem these days of many... Uh, publicly listed companies is that chief executives are basically badged down by either their public relations uh, advisors or indeed their legal advisors. More often, their legal advisors, to be honest, you can't say this, be very careful about saying that. Please don't give any sense of a vision for the future, all that sort of stuff. Whereas if you go and have a chat to a Jack Cowan, um, a Jerry Harvey's not frightened like that, you talk to the really great entrepreneurs, they're generally prepared to really give a very strong view, even though, say, if you were in a traditional company, that view might really absolutely scare the tribe out of your legal team. And this is one of the things that really, I think, is in some ways lacking in many large companies these days, many listed companies, is that ability for the management not to to, to really give that vision as to where they're going and where they're striving for, 
not just over the next you know 12 months or so where where they can see it foreseeably into the future but where they really see the vision of that business into the very long term it's one of the reasons why private equity has has taken off and has really you know sort of if you like grown so enormously because while publicly listed companies are all about being uh, risk averse in terms of trying to minimize risk you know you do find in private equity they're trying to build and they're trying to grow and so they're not as beholden with, if you like, the process of management uh, that many, many public companies are these days. Mm, it's a very good point. We need more sort of Mike Kenham Brooks types, I suppose. They're the new breed that are willing to not go by that book of what their advisors are telling them, whether it's their lawyers or whatever. Oh, yeah, so, and look, and there's, there's a couple of classic cases, right? So, you know, the, the, the guys from Canva are the similar, similar type mm. entrepreneurs, yeah. um, self-made, uh, you know, and obviously been highly successful. So uh, Mike Cannon Brooks, um, you know, is very similar. And, and you know, this is the whole point about it. It's got to be a point whereby you're prepared to speak your mind on a range of different subjects, you know, but they're, they're things that you're passionate about. You know, you know, to be honest, and he's always been a very interesting person to have yarn to, Twiggy was a sort of person like that, Andrew mm. Forrest, right? Now, yep. the truth is I've known Andrew for decades I kind of guess and it's just one of those things where you've seen him through his highs and lows but you saw a vision you saw a burning vision coming through there and a way not only to be able to you know fight the the big end of town the Rio Tintos and the BHPs to be able to gain access to those iron ore provinces as he did but also then to build a railway in almost record time to be able to access capital from China to be able to succeed with that um, but then also to be able to set up a philanthropic sort of uh, part of his uh, of his operation uh, to be able to go and invest in other areas where he thought there were uh, rights that needed to be to be done. So you know, but as I say, when you travelled with him through his minds, you always got that sense that he you know had the vision, that he knew what was going on, and even the way in which he allowed entrepreneurialism to come from the workforce on that mine, that also was one of the things that struck me about that because, you know, iron ore had been mined the same way for years and years and years. You simply get the biggest trucks and the biggest diggers you possibly could and dig it up and then stick it in a crushing mill and then stick it on a ship, send it, you know, overseas. Whereas they took, if you can imagine some of those giant road sort of uh, excavation things, when you see it crumble up the road as it goes along, well, they actually did that in their minds, giant versions of those. And so before it even got to the, the crushing mill, they'd already processed it but as it was coming out of the mine. And that simply saved time, made them more efficient, um, increased their profit margins. And that sort of entrepreneurialism coming from the actual ground floor is something you've got to be impressed with and you see it. Now, just changing tact a bit, I'm interested in your insights into the changing landscape of media since you started in the industry. Any any thoughts for us there? Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, you've only got to imagine the immediacy of media these days. If you think about, you know, when I started, you got your information from a daily paper. That was the newest thing that you had. Um, there was nothing new. Maybe radio might have picked a little bit up. Maybe television picked a bit up. And so as a result, really, it was a case whereby, you know, the media owners and proprietors were much stronger, much larger, um, had the, the, they had the exclusive reach. But over time, and especially with the online world and then social media arriving, it means that there's been a, a genuine democratisation of the media. 
And yes, certainly mainstream media plays its part as the independent and hopefully trusted voice along the way. But it does mean that, say, for example, being able to get vision from any small corner of the world now, that's what's changed. It comes to things like, say, for example, in my mind, I I get a sense of seeing, you know, sort of like I've never seen personally a tsunami happen, right? And yet through the media and through the landscape of the way in which technology has changed, I've seen the devastating uh, tsunami in in Japan as it rolled across those country, country fields. Now, in my case, I went to Japan to those same fields, uh, not, um, it was 10 weeks afterwards, I think it was that I was there and basically doing follow-up stories about that tragedy that claimed nearly 20,000 lives. Now, It was just a a situation where you are almost gobsmacked looking at the destruction of something so enormous. And yet to even think in this day and age that we see the big storms, we see space, we see things, you know, this is the reason why media has changed. But it then comes down to the very personal as well. We see, you know, sort of the details of people's lives through social media every single day. Um, and, And this is something where, again, the media has changed the way in which it's reported has changed, the speed of the cycle has changed. Um, And and that's one of the reasons why um, sometimes you've actually got to be prepared to get off that wheel, uh, as I did last year, because it really is just such a speed at which you run these days and constantly run because information is literally, you know, just absolutely dominating our lives these days. And listen, what about your views on the influence of things like Twitter and the subsequent impact on stocks, you know, like what we saw with GameStop. Um, You know, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that too. Well, if you consider, say, for example, well, go to Myanmar just in the last few weeks and the protests that have happened there. What is the very first thing that a military uh, sort of junta does in those those sort of countries? They close down social media because social media is used to organise Social media is used for protest. Social media is used to allow people to be able to have a common uh, thread or a common belief or a common view, or indeed, uh, uh, they they can actually be disparate views. And therefore, it's really important to recognise the good and bad that come from it. And so say, for example, it is about smaller, um, disparate, uh, far-flung sort of, if you like, influences being able to be brought together for either good or bad, I've got to say. Now, you know, I've seen both sides of this. I've seen the very best of it, um, where you do get people who are rallying around a cause, um, a just cause, a good cause, and as a result, much good comes from it. You see the worst of it, of course, which is the trolling that takes place. Um, you, you see the, the, the misinformation that comes out. Um, you see people who are able to access crazy ideas or conspiracy theories that you know actually are not right and don't work. Um, and so I think that's really important to recognise it. In regards to, say, for example, stocks and GameStop uh, and Reddit and this type of thing, look, it's almost inevitable that people come together for a common cause. In this case, I think it is most, most simple and most innocent in the case of GameStop, there were a whole bunch of stores that, 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 that some people liked. They liked to go there, like EB Games here in Australia, was owned by GameStop. You know, they're just games that people have gone to since they were kids. And they didn't want that to stop. They didn't want those 
businesses to, to evaporate under the pressure of short sellers. And so what happens is that they start a campaign. But as soon as they start that and become organised, all of a sudden it turns into something else. And that is, hang on, we can make money out of this. And then the squeeze goes on and gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, the problem of this is if we act in concert, you and I act in concert here, Louise, to go and buy stocks, we technically at some point have to start to tell people that we are acting in concert. We are a block. We are not two people actually independently buying stocks. We are one you know, entity buying stocks to have influence over a business. The problem of the Reddit situation is you've actually got people who are organised coming together to create an action over, over a business. Now, it can be argued, of course, on the other side, that short sellers and hedge funds have been effectively trying to do this, to corner stocks, to be able to squeeze value out of businesses that you know, really otherwise, without their undue influence, they might not be able to. Um, but if small investors do this and come together to do this as a united force, is it one or is it many? And can you actually legislate against that? I think that's one of the big issues for regulators here and around the world to try and figure out how do you actually, well, not only control, but how do you then allow that democratisation? Is it something that you've got to let go? You don't have control of. But I'll tell you what, that is certainly going to cause even more volatility in many companies if there is a genuine cause. Because then think about it the other way. If, say, for example, certain parties wanted to stop activities of a particular company on the market, and they were small investors, and there were enough of them, and they decided to short those stocks to really become aggressive on those companies, could they actually have a significant influence on what might otherwise be a highly reputable organisation? It's just that they didn't like what they were doing. There's your problem. And I think that's what really the world has got to try and address and figure out. I think it's going to be fascinating. I'm sure there's a, lots of boards that are considering that very issue as well. It's fascinating what's happened. Look, I know that you um, went to live in the UK in the late 90s and uh, obviously had a very, very successful career here in the media. I know you travel a lot, but what, what made you go to the UK? Well, look, in the back of my mind, I'd always wanted to, to, to go and travel and take some of your ideas elsewhere. Truth was also at the time, I was actually sitting there, I need the job. And that was partly it. Um, my time with BRW at the time had, had ended. Um, and I had a mate in the UK who I'd worked with, uh, who had sold some magazines, had a few bob in his pocket, and he'd seen a, a, a magazine or a business that I'd created here in Australia, which was Shares Magazine, which have been highly successful, incredibly successful. In fact, to be honest, it would be successful today in a big online version. And there are some uh, variations of it today. Anyway, so he rang me up and basically said, do you want to come and have a look at a business plan? I'm thinking about taking what you've done in Australia here into the UK and setting up a weekly magazine with websites and all the rest of it. And we're going to take on the Financial Times because they've got a magazine called The Investor's Chronicle, which is 130 years old. And so I went to London and had a look at his business plan. And I thought, gee, I could do this. I can actually do this. This is not, not the business plan and the hurdles were not that arduous. Anyway, so I basically said to my mate, and it's still a very good friend of mine today, I said, look, I'll, I'll have a crack at this. I'll, I'll do this. Uh, and so there was skin in the game, obviously. And, and basically from a blank room, I was sitting in a room literally by myself with a computer um, I think it was six weeks later or something like that, we put out our first magazine and hired 45, 50 people. Um, and so from that point of view, it was testing what I had learnt in Australia 
not just in creating magazines in those days, but also then creating websites, but also then trying to work out whether the way in which we were able to get into media here in Australia um, on radio and television, whether you could replicate that in the UK. And as it turned out, uh, it was pretty successful. And so, strangely enough, the magazine in the UK shares is still going even today. We sold it and uh, obviously did okay out of that. And it was just one of those great experiences that you've got. And I think everybody at some point should try to do this in their career. And that is to take your knowledge, to take what you understand uh, in, in this market, take it elsewhere, test your wings and see whether your skills travel. And as it turned out, yeah, my skills traveled and uh, it was one of those lovely experiences that you've got where you then experience you know, a different country, not working, say, as a correspondent or working for an Australian company, you're actually doing it yourself. And as I said, we could have crashed and burned. And I'd always said to my wife, well, I said, here's the, here's the great news. I said, if we crash and burn, I promise you that we'll spend 12 months somewhere in France before we come back to Australia. Uh. And we're still waiting for 12 months in France even now. I've tried a couple of times to get there. It just doesn't happen. Oh, no. Well, maybe 2022. Certainly won't be this year. But uh, look, she's a patient woman. Very patient woman, because that goes back now, well, goodness, it goes back 17, 18 years, and she's still saying, you know, like, hello, what's, what's, what's happened to that? Because that was what the idea of the, the 12 months off was supposed to be, and that was because of, and this is a part of it, part of the story, because of the proceeds of that, um, the proceeds of the sale of that, we bought an apartment in France, we've got it there, it's been great, we go and visit occasionally, so that's where we're supposed to be for the year. Um, and as it turned out, of course, uh, coronavirus comes, it disrupted us. Now, you know, we can't complain. We are, we, are, we are certainly not as affected as so many other people. So as I say, I am, I am certainly not, uh, not uh, bemoaning the situation, but it's, uh, it's just one of those funny things that life never really dishes out what you expect. And look, I hear from Jeff Wilson that you were nearly blown up in Nice. I mean, what happened there? Is that a true story? Yeah, no, no, no. That's probably not a true story, no. But, uh, but no, no, <laughs> it, it is it is fair to say that we do have uh, we do have places. Some of the interesting things, uh, just in regards to things that have been a little bit dangerous, and that that's certainly no a long way off the truth. Uh, but the interesting things that I've done. One of the one of the more interesting stories that I've covered is the National Australia Bank owned the National Irish Bank, uh, and I think it's two thousand and two. No, 2000, it's later than that, 2004, uh, the same time that the tsunami hit uh, Banda Aceh and Thailand, uh, there was a world record robbery in Northern Ireland, in Belfast. And uh, the bank was the National Irish Bank, owned by the National Australia Bank. And I was charged to go there. I was in London at the time, charged to go there to go and uh, report on that story. For I think it was the Sunday program. Anyway, so get over there with the cameraman and I'll tell you what, it was a wild time because it was supposed to have been the real IRA who had done it. Of course, the IRA is not necessarily in the phone book, so you had to find contacts, you had to go in there. It was one of the more interesting and disturbing experiences. And I'd been to um, Belfast and Northern Ireland quite a few times while I was working in London. And so I sort of broadly knew the landscape, but i got to say, we saw another side of the underbelly of uh, of. Belfast that we did not expect to see at that time. And I've got to say, um, you know, in hindsight, thoroughly enjoyable, but uh, my cameraman had just not long come out of a war-torn Beirut and he said, look, I was in Lebanon last week and 
this is more dangerous than what that was. <laughs> tell you the, well, the sort of funny, funny experience you have. And as I say, I'm just doing, a, I'm a boring old finance journalist doing boring old stuff. But the brilliance of the job has been always that it is as interesting as you want to make it. I mean, you can make it as dull as you possibly like, but I always think if you are to tell these stories to their very best, you have got to be prepared to put yourself out there and you've also got to be prepared to go and find the story, not the not the theory behind it or whatever it might be. And that's the brilliance of television. With, with newspapers, you can sit in an office, you can sit at home and make telephone calls and you can pick up quotes and you can talk to people and whatever. With radio, same thing. But with television, if you're to do it at its best, you have to go and look at things. And that is the brilliance of doing television because you actually go out and you not only see the conditions under which people are living, you see the business and what they're doing, but you actually experience things. And I think that's one of the uh, one, one of the best parts of my media career has been those experiences of physically going places and seeing things. Uh, and as I say, if that means you're in Belfast trying to find out whether the IRA really knocked off the bank um, and uh, or whether you're in, you know, sort of um, in Japan after a tsunami, if you are in the Middle East watching cars being traded uh, at auctions in sandstorms. I mean, you know, astonishing things. If you're in the States and you're actually, you know, being able to travel through. So, you know, some of the experiences that I've had during this time um, have been quite phenomenal. And, and it is the actual going to see things, that are some of the great things. Now, look, as you said, I know you had that gap year last year and you were due to go travelling and playing lots of golf and everything else and you ended up staying at home like we all did and you started that new your new podcast series, The Money Minutes. And I'm guessing you love doing your podcast as much as I've loved doing mine, which I started probably a similar time to you last year. Who's been your favourite guest so far? Well, I've got to say that there's some people um, around the place uh, who I think have been absolutely amazing. Now, there's lots of them. So, for, say, for example, Jack Cowan, I've interviewed quite a lot, um, and he, he's another one I've mentioned, mentioned him before. Um, anyway, but if I sit there and go through it, though, um, there's a number of people, say, for example, a bloke called Evan Tyler, who I absolutely love. So Evan Tyler is now... I think he's about to turn 93. So Evan Tyler was the was the explorer, um, the geologist who went out and found the Argyle Diamond Mine. Now he's not only responsible for that, but also Ellendale, who was part of that. And so he is responsible. Australia's had probably, I think, four great diamond mines. He's responsible for three of them. And you sit there as a 93-year-old, thoroughly lucid, lucid. And considering also that it was last year that Rio Tinto stopped production at the Argyle Diamond Mine, you know, producer of 90% of the world's pink diamonds, uh, Evan Tyler, you know, discovered it and can tell you in detail about what took place. I mean, you you just got to gotta be impressed and you've got to really enjoy those conversations because that's a conversation that, you know, can sit there for the very, very long term. And that's why I, I really like it so much. Uh, being able to just have a have a conversation with people such as that, I think that is absolutely brilliant. So you know those types of things, or say for example, um, finding a couple of Qantas pilots who, because of coronavirus, can't fly. They can't get a job. The poor old pilot's basically gone out and done 150 interviews or something like that. Nobody wants to hire him because they know as soon as a vaccine comes in, that he's going to go back and start flying planes for Qantas again. 
So he's standing on Coogee Beach one day with a bloke who's actually also a pilot. He's flying a drone, trying to spot sharks on Coogee Beach for the lifesavers. And the two of them get together and start to talk about their skills and what they did before they were pilots. And they end up creating a business that's become highly successful, basically, you know, automating your house, making certain that everything switches on with the internet. And they suddenly just said, well, this is not a bad idea. Let's see how it goes. And as a result, you suddenly discover that, you know, sort of the business has taken off to the point at which they've now had to make some fairly serious decisions um, as to whether they actually can go back to being pilots or whether, in fact, they should really continue to to, to be entrepreneurs and, and, and have this business, uh, you know, increase and rise and grow and all that sort of stuff. So, as I say, it's just a lovely thing to be able to go and have a long chat with people like that to, to get their feelings, to get their emotions, and, as I say, to tell their stories. And that's what I really, really do love. Some of those unsung heroes and not just the big names that are the, the fascinating stories. So well done. Now, I'm curious, have you had any mentors along the way and any particular outstanding mentor? Is there anyone that's sort of been particularly important in shaping your career or your personal choices over the years? There's one. There's absolutely one who is not just a mentor to me, but to so many others. And that is Bob Gottliebson. So Robert Gottliebson, I will always call out as the man who really taught me how to be a business and finance journalist, how to tell the stories, how to use other media. Now, Bob Gottliebson, of course, was not only the original Chanticleer columnist in the Australian Financial Review, uh, but he was also the creator of Business Review Weekly in those days. Um, He took that business to the world. He created a very large business, which, of course, now, because of, you know, weekly magazines disappearing like dinosaurs because that news cycle we talked about right at the start, has just sped up so much. Uh, but he was the one who really did teach not just me, but so many others. He was, I, I would suggest, the mentor to, uh, say, for example, uh, David Koch uh, from the Sunrise fame. Alan Kohler is certainly another one. Adele Ferguson would be another. But, but there are many others who whose names you might not know so well, um, you know, great business and finance journalists, that he has had an influence over their careers. So Bob is has just turned 80, uh, and it's phenomenal because at 80, uh, he gets up at 5.30 in the morning, reads all the papers, and then sits down and writes his column for The Australian, um, and he is in as good form now as he has ever been. And it's just incredible to see that that incisiveness of his mind. Now, Bob, I've got to say, is, you know, again, one of these great eccentrics, um, and Bob will tell you something when you're working with Bob and you'll sit there and look at him and think that he... He comes from Mars. No, how could you possibly think that, Bob? You know, and the next minute he will tell you something. And you'll sit down and think about it afterwards and go, "I could have sat here for a month, and I would not have had that thought, right?" And yet you sit there and think about it and go, "Yep, you're absolutely right." And it is just that he was patient. Um, he was funny in his own way. It was just hilarious. And if you think about it, he was the original sort of television uh, finance commentator, not only on Sky News but also on the ABC. Uh, with his breathless uh, delivery, it was fantastic. So, yeah, so Bob is absolutely the one because it's not just to me but to so many others as well. Ross, you know, I still read his column now. Like, I don't think I missed one because he's, you're right on. He is sharp as ever. And I think I was reading recently, you know, I think he was commentating on the Christine Holgate, you know, the Australia Post, uh, you know, and he was calling it out well and truly and I thought, hey, you are, he's right on it. And they just got it totally, that situation, they just got totally and utterly wrong. I know Christine really well. She's a fabulous, fabulous executive. And the truth of the matter was she got stitched up. 
Now, in fact, I believe that the politicians of Prime Minister misread that situation. She got stitched up by the unions, by the postal unions, who are, you know, desperate to hang on to jobs as the postal delivery service diminishes in Australia. And it has to, it has to, and, and but as parcel delivery takes off um, and you go all the way back. So I think really in many ways uh, that was something that was misread by politicians and should have been handled so much better, which is what Bob would say. The, the interesting thing about Bob, and I'll say this, and this is a thing for any person listening, when you're broadcasting or when you're commentating it, but then even if you are in business yourself and you're putting out a podcast, you're putting out uh, communications, the number one most important thing to understand is who is your market, right? If you have in your head some idea as to who you are trying to communicate to and you know what that person's values are and you understand the way in which that person might respond to that information, then you will get it right every time. But the problem is that most people go out there and they think they've just got to communicate to the world and somebody will pick it up. No, that's just not the way you do it. You have got to have a very clear and distinct idea as to who it is you're talking to, what their values are. You have got to have been in that type of a person's house. You have got to have spoken to that person, to have socialised, to have connected with that person. And if you've got that person firmly in your mind when you're communicating, and as I say, this doesn't necessarily mean journalism, but it is certainly for journalists, but it's also for anybody marketing any product. If you understand the values of your, your, of your constituents, you will always do so much better. And that is the one thing I would suggest to you that Bob Gottlieb's has taught so many other journalists, younger journalists in their day, and certainly he taught that to me as well. You sound like a serious workaholic to me. I know when you did your Channel 9 gig, you'd be at it all day and then you'd do the 2GB radio. And I gather you do all your own research as well, or, or a lot of it. You must be obsessed by the cut and thrust of the media game and obviously business. And you seem like you're constantly on person. I mean, how do you relax and take yeah, time out? You don't, want to, you don't want to believe everything you record. <laughs> I'm really good at doing nothing. I'm excellent at doing nothing. I'm very, very good at it. Now, look, and this, this, there's another part of this as well. If you don't actually perceive that what you're doing is work, then it makes life a lot easier. If you're not getting up to go to work, but you're getting up to go and, well, play is a good word for it, I guess, but you're going out to do something that genuinely interests you and that is really something whereby you're going to get something out of that, um, then it never actually feels like work. And that's the key. You know, the workaholic, what's a workaholic? A workaholic to me is, is a person who works really hard doing something they don't like. That to me would be a workaholic, right? But a person who really loves what they do, well, are they really working or are they actually playing? So in, in my case, it would be fair to say that, you know, when I'm talking to you about going and seeing things, and that's all just my natural curiosity of, you know, being in a job where you can get out of the office, where you can go and look at things, where you can go and talk to people, uh, and when you can communicate, you know, the messages and all that type of thing, it's, that's not work. That's kind of like, well, I kind of guess that's what I am in some ways. But, you know, the whole thing about it is that, I've always played a lot of sport as well, and I'm, you know, highly competitive in whatever sport I will play. I'm still playing cricket into my 60s, uh, which sounds mad, I know. People say that's crazy. <laughs> it probably is, but that's okay. But I know it's good. I love it. I'm getting out. And again, this is a part of the way in which we as a community are ageing. We are more active than what our parents and grandparents were. Uh, we are playing organised sport much later 
Um, we are trying to maintain our, our weight. Our mental health is better if you're around other people and you have got a, a, a like-minded topic or project that you're on. I mean, all of this is a part of the reason why. But I got to say, when you think about the work and so forth, um, one of the other great things about, you know, sort of working in that way is if you walk into any newsroom, it's a bit, a little bit like walking into a, a dealing room or anything like that. You've generally got, well, shall I say, type one personalities in there, all very interesting, all very opinionated, uh, all very loud normally. And so as a result, in that type of environment, it is likely during the day, at least several times, that you will absolutely fall about laughing. And you're going to sit there because it is funny, right? Things happen and it's hilarious. And so, you know, these type one personalities will constantly entertain you. So from that point of view, it is it is really one of the, you know, from my point of view, it's always been one of the great professions. And the reason why I've kind of stuck to that storytelling as distinct from getting out and going into, I don't know, funds management or broking or something else like that, even though you might have the knowledge or the skills or whatever it might be, to be honest, being in that environment has actually always been much more entertaining for me. No, well, I can see, obviously, you're incredibly passionate about your work and life. And I, I like the analogy that you you love what you're doing, so it doesn't feel like work. So, you know, it's a bit like what a lot of elite sports people say. That's it. And it's, it's what they do. It's what they're good at doing. It's what they do. And it's, you know, and it, and it ultimately ends up being more like play. And if and at its very best, that's what it should be like, I guess. Is there anything still on your bucket list business-wise that you'd like to do one day and haven't quite got to it yet? I'm, I'm guessing there'd be a few things, but any, anything in particular? Or maybe you don't want to reveal it. No, 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 I'm absolutely fine. Look, you'd, you'd like to think that some of the entrepreneurial efforts that you make occasionally, you know, you back something or you get you'd like to think that some of these ideas would really genuinely take off. But what I have discovered, uh, you know, sort of over a very long time is that, you know, you'd like to think that you're going to win lotto and that, uh, you know, and I never ever in my life take lotto, lotto tickets out because I just know what the odds are like and I just think, you know, I'm not that lucky, right? So never in, never in a million years. I just know that it's just a mug's going that. But what I do always think is that the idea of getting into business and suddenly 12 months later having it explode and everybody wants to buy it off you for tens of millions of dollars, that never happens. It's always still that it's basically from the idea to the actual, um, to the success of a business is always 10 years. Um, it's It may be sooner for some who get fortunate, but generally for those who just graft away and do it, it takes 10 years. And that's the whole point. Lots of people like to think that they can make a fortune quickly. All sorts of people with their with their side hustles and you know the so-called gig economy and people are out there trying to trying to work up a, a deal at a little online business or something like that is fantastic. And some do get lucky, there's no doubt. Um, but they're the equivalent of the lotto winners, I think, in my mind. But the ones who stick at it for 10 years and graft away probably almost go under a couple of times, just hang on by the by the skin of their teeth. They're the ones, to my mind, who ultimately are in business because that's what business is. It's hard. It's not easy. So it'll be quite nice to see that some of the seeds that you plant do actually, you know, come to fruition at some stage. That would be a really lovely thing to do. And if I've got a, you know, a personal thing, I look at company boards these days. I just think some of the composition of company boards is completely and utterly skewed all the wrong way in, in as much as that people from a certain educational background, a certain mindset, 
a certain driven sort of like, if you like, philosophy come through. And I think often in company boards, there's a little lacking in common sense. And it would be quite nice to think in the future that maybe a little bit more common sense might actually get into some of that public company field. Otherwise, I think it's the the, the real opportunity um, is in private equity, where certainly I think there's a lot more pragmatism in regards to doing business and a lot less process. And we talked about that a little earlier in terms of public company boards in particular being so risk averse these days. And look, finally, is there anything you'd recommend as a must read or listen to over the next little while? Obviously, your podcast series, but is there a particular book, for instance, that you'd recommend? Look, all I'm going to say, I'm going to go back to the old stuff, the books that I read and have still got and reread occasionally. These are the great books. And that is Benjamin Graham, The Intelligent Investor. Just just read it. Mm-hmm. Like the, if you yep. want to set yourself up as an investor, yep. and it doesn't matter, ignore Reddit and all that sort of stuff. Just Benjamin Graham will teach you how to be a, a better, a more astute investor. A random walk down Wall Street by Burton Malkiel, same sort of thing. Uh, again, very, very good. And, and probably the other one that I really always loved, just these are old books, right? These are not new, but they're, they're still as current mm. today as they have ever been. Um, go and read The Richest Man in Babylon by George Classen, who, you know, again, I just thought was another just standout book that allows you to do it. Now, there's all sorts of people have written all sorts of books here. One of the funny things is that I've always refused to write a book. And that is because if I do write a book, it's got to be thoroughly and utterly different from anything that anybody else has written. And lots of people come to you and go, mate, just knock out a book on how to make money real fast and all that sort of stuff. And you go, well, yeah, nah, don't want to do that. Lots of people have done that type of stuff before. You'd like to think if you were going to write something, that you would write something that was fundamentally different, that is entertaining, uh, and that is not simply much of the same that's already out there. It might be commercially successful, but to me, really, it's got to be a little bit different. Um, and also, it's got to be a little bit entertaining, not just to you, but to the poor person who has to buy it and read it to the other end as well. <laughs> I reckon there probably is a book in you at some stage. So, you know, we'll yeah. stay, maybe even fiction. You know, it could be something some, completely different. Somebody would have to chain me to the desk, though, Louise. That would be the problem. And 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 lock, and lock up and break my golf clubs. I think all of those things would, have, would come as priorities, I would have thought. So, yes, I've, I've got to say, I've got about... Probably my, in my computer at the moment, I've probably got about oh, five first chapters, I reckon, of different ideas and books I've had to go on. And I get, the, get to a certain point and go, nah, this is not entertaining me. This looks like hard work. And I stop. I know. Anyway, at some stage, one of them will keep going. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ross. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. And uh, thank you very much for your time and for your insights. And I look forward to sharing with you the the second episode of Conversations with Future Generations, Season 2, next month in March. Thanks again, Ross. And Louise, thank you very much as well for all the work you have done with Future Generation. And I know that you've also got some change coming in your future career, and it's been great having a chat to you, and I look forward to catching up in the future. Thanks again, Ross. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations with Future Generation. Brought to you by Impact Investment Companies, Future Generation Australia and Future Generation Global. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your network. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts.